Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Pat TDS of the Trickle Down Socialism Podcast. Pat is a teacher, an activist, an independent media podcaster, and revolutionary. On the show, we discuss Israel, Palestine, the education industrial complex, and sports. Thank you for listening. Solidarity forever. going man how, how you doing <laughs> pretty good so yeah it's a late night here for us two working people tough to change the world uh working a nine-to-five job isn't that right well yeah i think it's by design we've talked about this i believe but uh the more desperate the more busy you keep folks um the more distracted you keep folks the the less they're going to ask questions about the boot on their neck yeah, it's tough to keep track of everything we talk about. We usually go uh, off on all different sorts of tangents. Uh, we try to stick to the script a little bit, don't we? I think we should we try, yeah. <laughs> a lot of things going on in the world right now, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. I've been consumed uh, by the coverage of what's going on in the Gaza Strip. I, uh, you know, I seek out my sources and I find what I, what I think are the the most truthful and accurate sources about the numbers and about the actual living conditions of people in the Gaza Strip and, you know, what they've been living under for at least 15, 16 years in terms of, like, almost a total siege. Um, and also, you know, the last 75 years of kind of chaos and occupation and being driven from their ancestral homelands and yeah, I try to keep that perspective up front when I'm understanding it, you know, and looking at it also as Israel, you know, despite having an absolute need for a safe place to not be persecuted, um, really does represent kind of the last settler colonial project that is, you know, nearing completion, right? So like the United States, Australia, those are done you know, for the most part, in terms of power share, in terms of land, and and that land being held by capital. Uh, Israel is like 96% of the way there. Um, so that's that's kind of what we're seeing here. But didn't mean to just launch right into it. I just wanted to make sure that I shared what's, what's top of mind for me. And, you know, I'm a history teacher, uh, but I'm in a kind of a new role in my school. And uh, at the start of the year, we had we don't have many kids in my program. So I've been asked by my principal to help out in other uh, social studies classes across the school. And the last few days of last week, they 
you know, the teachers wanted to do a little bit of a, a backgrounder for students on Gaza and Israel. And they mostly approached it really fair-mindedly and tried to really show the land, the progression of land grabbing, the, the, the uh, progression of Israeli control over the region. Um, but in one seventh grade class, I'd stepped in to assist as I had been doing across sixth, seventh and eighth grade. And um, I, you know, someone brought up the, the, uh, the Baptist Christian hospital in, um, in Gaza that had been leveled, like dropped to the ground. Um, and I mentioned, you know, someone, one of the students said it was Israel, uh, it was Hamas who did it, which was never even a claim from Israel or any of the world sources. Um, it was, you know, a separate Palestinian jihadist group, supposedly that had done it. Um, but I pointed out that the timestamp was off in the New York Times story about it initially. I pointed out, you know, a number of things, not even saying explicitly that Israel was to blame. I just said, you know, it's really important that we examine sources here, that we examine patterns, um, and that we take time because the fog of war is is really pretty heavy sometimes and uh, initial reports can be off. And, um, you know, also you need to really dig in and look for a lot of different sources to make your decision. And one parent found this to be atrocious that I had kind of even suggested that it wasn't a Palestinian or, you know, group from Gaza that had committed the act. And so they emailed the teacher who was in charge of the classroom the teacher emailed back and this is like a first year teacher. So I was like, ah, please don't let's, let's slow down this communication for a second. But then got like a really condescending and just really shitty email from the parent about facts do matter. And, you know, Biden said it right after the fact. So it's gotta be true. And it's just like, wow, wow. You know, um, luckily my principal was, is a former social studies teacher. And she was like, no, 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 this is, you don't talk to our teachers like this. You know, this is condescending, but it really spooked me. It was spooky for me to see how fast, you know, that, that lashback happened just from having an open conversation, right? Just from trying to present to kids the truth uh, in terms of like what has gone on on that land over the past 75 years, but especially the last 50 years. Um, you know, I think kids need to know it and, and need, to, and I think a lot of our students being from Latin America can understand the concept of having land stolen or, uh, you know, of being under occupation or being under some type of regime that doesn't really feel like it speaks for the people. So, you know, it wasn't too far fetched for my students to grasp it. Yeah. To call this <clears throat> a war, that wouldn't be justified. It's not a war. Um, I'm going to bring up some terms here that are very much propagandized, but I think they are um, informative for what's going on here. Uh, I think it's a slaughter. I think it's a massacre. I think it's a genocide, uh, eradicating the Palestinians, um, destroying their culture, destroying their homes, destroying their city. It's one-sided. Uh, Hamas um, that government does not speak for everyone living, the two million or so people in Gaza. Um, my government doesn't speak for me uh, supporting, um, you know, Israel in their continued uh, colonialism uh, and expansion, their occupation, illegal occupation and, uh, and settlement. Um, but, yeah, it's certainly not a war. Um, whatever it is, it's, it's very one-sided. Um, when, you know... 
Palestinians use violence and terrorist acts and strike back against Israel, um, you know, and it's not justified. Like, innocent Israeli people died. It's not justified. I don't support uh, the Hamas attack. Um, but I don't support any government. I do support peace there. Uh, and the United States um, and Israel are known allies. Um, I just tweeted this earlier today. Um, a food vote, you know, food is a human right. Uh, the only countries that said that human uh, food is not a human right uh, in the last vote at the UN uh, was Israel and the United States. Um, Israel is essentially a military outpost for the United States to flex military muscle and control the world's oil supplies, continue to control the world's oil supply. Um, it's a um, strategic um, outlet, you know, for the United States and the United States military. Uh, the United States is kind of, or I'm sorry, Israel is kind of like a microcosm of the United States. Uh, it's a very militarized, high-tech uh, economy. Um, they are very much intertwined, the United States and Israel. A lot of times the security forces, police forces are trained by the Israeli army. Uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of back and forth training between Israel and the United States. Um, Israel is also, um, and, and, uh, it provides weapons contractors, um, you know, uh, angels of death, merchants of death, um, Defense contractors, if you want to call them defense, I always quote defense, but it provides uh, an outlet to, to test um, Israel. It provides an outlet for these defense contractors and high-tech uh, militarized um, you know, weapons. It provides an outlet to train them on live targets, Palestinians. Uh, and if the United States was independent on oil, if it didn't need uh, to import oil, it would still want to maintain control uh, of the world's oil supply in the Middle East. So this would still be a very strategic, um, you know, I guess, territory. Um, because when you control the world's oil supply in an oil, oil-based economy, you know, you control, you know, the world. Um, for example, the embargo, you know, with um, which is um, many human rights groups have been calling out, um, you know, the the blockade or whatever of Gaza uh, running out of energy, running out of oil, um, you know, they're unable to, um, you know, supply themselves. And, uh, you know, they're obviously, um, you know, going without food and shelter and just everything. It's just, it's just a mess. It really is a mess. But I guess to kind of go back to my original point, it's not a war. Um, and again, these are propagandized terms, but to me, it seems like a slaughter, a massacre, a genocide. Uh, the violence uh, in this um, conflict is very much one-sided. You know, for every, I don't know, I, it, it's not corpses to corpses. Like, you don't want to compare corpses, but it seems like, you know, for every um, Israeli corpse, there seems to be a dozen of Palestinian corpses. And I think over half uh, of the numbers I've seen are um, women uh, and children, non-combatants, um, and, you know, whatever happened in the um, hospital bombing, um, this is a pattern that's very typical of Israel. Uh, a lot of times when, you know, uh, civilian structures are bombed or hospitals or schools or, uh, um, you know, churches or, um, you know, religious buildings and whatnot, um, they, 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 I tweeted this out the other day. They typically say, oh, this is a faulty, you know, Palestinian rocket. And then they say, oh, well, you know, there was a terrorist cell there uh, and that the people that died, unfortunately, were uh, human shields. You know, it's just the same kind of 
Um, I, I read an article that said these types of things. This is, you know, their typical MO. Uh, and Israel also has like a troll farm all over social media. You know, people calling out any critique of Israel as uh, anti-Semitic. Uh, and of course, um, you know, to, to, well, first off, maybe we can even go to this question. What do you think about a religious state, an apartheid state, placing some people above others, placing Jewish people, giving them more rights over Muslim people, over Christians, over non-denominations? What do you think about, just in general, Israel uh, and its existence? Uh, and I've said this in many tweets, uh, as, as, as Americans, we are just as responsible um, for the terrorism that's going on in Gaza, Gaza as the Israeli um, people, because without the United States politi- uh, political military and economic support, Israel would collapse as a country. Uh, we also found, uh, fund their um, you know, universal health care system and their education, and we allow for the expansion of uh, these nice suburbs and Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and all that kind of stuff. It's all made possible on the taxpayer dime. So a lot of people need to wake up. Uh, I guess I, I got a couple of different questions here. I wanted to say one other thing. There's, a, yeah, the, the Israeli lobby really flexing its muscle uh, censorship. Uh, Al Jazeera and Israel frequently shuts down newspapers that conflict um, with the way they see things. Uh, they shut down Al Jazeera in Israel, and then I saw like a um, a uh, group of lawyers um, spoke out at universities and stuff spoke out in um, in support of the Palestinians. Uh, and yet uh, I saw like this group of young lawyers or lawyers to be, um, you know, some powerful whatever. New York uh, lawyer group or whatever firm, um, you know, rescinded these job offers. They wanted the, the students' names published. They wanted to blacklist them. So there's a lot of um, consequences. There's a lot of censorship for uh, in American culture and certainly in, in Jewish culture in Israel, um, you know, to, to speak out against the state of Israel and what they're doing in Gaza and to call it, you know, even to, to speak the truth about it. Uh, there are real consequences, even when you say, you know, you support Gaza and you support, um, you know, the people and the Palestinians' rights, even if you're not even condemning what Israel is doing. Sometimes that's enough, you know, to be oppressed in, in our society. And, you know, it's not as severe uh, punishment as what, what the Palestinians are going through. You might die and be bombed. I saw some child with his face blown off. He's still alive, um, but just, you know, just mutilated from these from these bombs, you know, in the United States, you might lose your job, you might get censured, uh, you might get called out on Twitter or something like that. Not a big deal, right? We're not dying, but there's still consequences here for for speaking the truth about what's going on uh, over there in Gaza. No, it's it's that's exactly the kind of thing I was meant. I was trying to like, you know, reference when I mentioned how spooky it was to have that that parent emailing so aggressively. Um, a first year teacher who was re- really taking a very, you know, uh, even handed and just like benefit of the doubt approach to teaching this conflict. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not just that though, right? It's like, like you mentioned the, the graduates from Harvard law school who are not going to, you know, they've had their job offers rescinded because of signing a letter. Um, but it's, it's beyond that. And it's really spooky, um, in the same area, in my area of, of the, of this country, uh, you know, I'm in the Boston area. Now I taught in Boston public schools and I've actually worked in East Cambridge. Uh, Cambridge is where Harvard university is. Beautiful but, town. I've been there. Beautiful town. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. 
Um, but they, uh, you know, this this letter from a student group you know, basically just said that, you know, pointed out the fact that, that the occupation and just the day-to-day existence of, of a person living in Gaza, uh, you know, was, was very much to blame for the violent reaction we saw from Hamas, right? That the attack wouldn't, wouldn't have happened, this letter said, if it weren't for, you know, the, the, the um, you know, unquestioning support that the U.S. state has and the U.S. military industrial complex has for Israel, as well as the Israeli occupation and the apartheid state that uh, Palestinian and Palestinian Israelis, like people living within the, the borders of Israel who are Palestinian, you know, they have a different existence, right? They ha- they can be accused of a crime. It's very much Jim Crow South-esque or apartheid, so. apartheid South Africa in the sense that you'll have, um, you know, you've had cases of a, a Palestinian Muslim man living within Israel who dates a Jewish girl and then is found out later or somehow accused later of hiding their Muslim identity or their Arab identity in, in to, to have a first or second date with this girl and actually charged criminally, you know, in courts, it's just, it's shocking. Right. But, you know, getting back to the point of, of the media blackout that we've seen on news of, you know, the, the Palestinian day-to-day existence, um, but also just the billboards, right? So this is like moving, like, like truck billboards were rented out to smear and docks the, uh, a number of the students who signed this letter stating that Israel was all, was to blame, you know, for the violence as it occurred. Um, and the violence was a reaction to the brutal occupation and land theft. And, and again, neither of us are condoning the terrorism and the innocent Israelis that were killed by the Hamas uh, missile attack though, right? No, Hamas, you know, not, not just missile attack. It, it's a Hamas, you know, invasion. Yeah, sure. invasion, sure. invasion by um, by hang glider. Um, but no, I, I I have said it a hundred times, and I will continue to say it that I am for peace. That every fighter, I think, is a disaffected person. Of every person who commits violence is is at at a point of desperation. What I do think, um, though, is when the Israeli troops and security forces, when they invade Palestine, I think that they have absolutely no rights, and I think the Palestinians that live there have every right to attack them, invading their land. Uh, but in, in terms of killing innocent civilians, um, you know, missiles, taking hostages, all that sorts of stuff, I didn't read into it. Uh, I'm sure it's very gruesome. Um, I, 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 I've kind of been researching this for quite some time. And for the most part, it's mostly one-sided, but of course, um, Palestinian people do very bad things as well to the Israelis, but a lot of times that's provoked. But yeah, I think, um, you know, if the security forces and the Israeli army are invading Palestinian territory, I think they have the right to defend themselves and to um, use violence to get them out of their territory. Uh, I think that Chomsky has mentioned this uh, numerous times. There is um, the international consensus um, the two-state settlement, um, which I think would be a great thing. I think that's been the national consensus for decades now. 
Um, maybe something that would be even better would be a democratic one-state settlement, you know, where Israeli uh, or Israel and Palestinians, Muslims, Jewish, Christians, non-denomination denominations, they all have equal rights. I think that would be the long-term goal. That would be the best-case scenario, but a two-state settlement would be a good, good way to start. Um, but there's a third option. The third option is Israel keeps doing whatever they're doing, you know, taking what they want, leaving Palestinians next to nothing, leaving them to rot in the world's largest uh, prison or concentration camp in the world. And let me quote Chomsky here, because I do it all the time. Uh, Chomsky on the Gaza occupation. This is, from an, this is from an interview with Democracy Now! and Amy Goodman. Um, this is Chomsky here, to, and I quote, In the uh, occupied territories, what Israel is doing is much worse than apartheid. To call it apartheid is a gift to Israel. At least if by apartheid you mean South African-style apartheid. What's happening in the occupied territories is much worse. There's a crucial difference. The South African nationalists needed the black population. That was their workforce. The Israeli relationship to the Palestinians in the occupied territories is totally different. They don't just want them. They want them out, or at least in prison. And in some instances, I quote Chomsky ends, uh, but I'll go ahead and finish. <laughs> Sometimes they want them dead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I do think it, I do want to go back, um, you know, you mentioned that we, neither of us uh, are okay with the violence, and that is 100% true. I'm never okay with violence. I'm always for peace. But I do think it's really important to recognize the, the racism and the, you know, the Orientalism and anti-Islam, you know, uh, beliefs that allowed the lies to spread when that violence first started on October 7th. The idea of 40 beheaded babies just bullshit absolutely right. insane bullshit just like the kuwaiti lie about you know you know kuwaiti babies being ripped from incubators when in fact right now because of the strikes on hospitals not just one multiple hospitals and the embargo on fuel entering gaza we have you know babies that are dying because they can't receive the basic care that they need because they're premature or they're on life support for some other reason this is really happening, and it's not happening to Israeli citizens, right? And the hostages that are being freed now, we've heard of two in the last day, they're reporting it being treated with absolute fairness, being fed the same food as their captors, and they're reporting that they were you know, whisked away somewhat abruptly and violently on, on motorbike, but then carefully walked through underground tunnels and treated with the utmost respect. And so these lies about rape and about killing of babies, it's just not what happened. And a lot of the party goers at the music festival, which was done right on the border of an open air prison, which is the Gaza Strip, you know, it was just so callous, right, to have that party there. But they were killed and it's on video and confirmed by party goers that they were killed by Israeli defense forces because Israeli defense forces were, you know, caught entirely off guard. Most of them were in the West Bank protecting, you know, illegal settlements there and a kind of a tourism of a pilgrimage of you know, sorts where people were worshiping at a certain site that was within the occupied West Bank. And, you know, they, they just were firing, you know, as they do sometimes to try to neutralize a, a Palestinian threat. There was a you handful. Know, let me, let me and, do it here that there was and, a handful of prisoners, uh, you know. The, the oh, Palestine. sure. There are, no, there are let's, still let's prisoners. Yeah, Let's, I think it was a handful. Though. Let's read here. Here's, this is from Wikipedia. In April uh, 2022, uh, there were 4,450 Palestinian 
Palestinians in Israeli prisons, including 160 children, 32 women, and over 1,000 administrative detainees. They say that in quotes, whatever that means. Also, in the last two weeks, here's the last every... two weeks, though. Israel doubles the number of Palestinian prisoners to 10,000. 10,000 in the last two weeks. So we're making all this big stink about a handful of prisoners that were unjustly you know, hostages taken by the Palestinian forces. How about the 10,000 uh, Palestinians in Israeli prisons right now? Is anyone on the front page news is making a big deal about that? Well, and the 2 million within the Gaza Strip who are essentially living in an open-air prison, unable to get the necessities that they need and unable to leave and enter at will. They are, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right about the prisoners. Which is a violation actual... of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Yes, absolutely. But, but of course, uh, know, the, the winners never uh, winners are never subjected to war crimes. So if Israel wins this conflict, and I don't know how there's any way they won't, um, you know, they're certainly not going to be subjected to war war crime tribunals. The United States isn't going to subject them. Not their uh, closest allies, certainly not. No, and I think that's why I, I really cringe at the term uh, terrorist, right, to, to describe Hamas, because who's deciding who's the terrorist, right? right. Who's using terror to uh, to you know, further their their own interests. We can make that claim about a lot of groups, right? Israel, so I think Israel is a terrorist state. The United States is the largest terrorist state in the world by their own definition. Uh, I read this on our podcast last time. Basically, there's a definition, and this is you know putting forth some Chomsky's work, but terrorism by definition to those in power is at violence they commit against us that we don't like. And by definition, anti-terrorism is anything we do in response to that. That's right. Yeah. No, it's it's well defined. Chomsky talks about it very well. Um, Howard Zinn's written some interesting stuff about it, but a number of people have. And it's just for me, it's 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 all in the definition of the ruling class, right? Who who does the ruling class decide is, you know, dangerous and different enough to to kind of otherize as the terrorist group that we have to watch out for. That's kind of how I look at that term. And that's why, you know, as someone who has family um, and has really, because of my family from Ireland, I've done a lot of reading on the topic of the troubles and of the IRA, you know, even in the early iterations um, that won independence in, in the 19 teens. Um, I just find a lot of parallels in the struggle. And, you know, British colonial forces were in it was, we're behind the creation of both of those colonies, both Israel, you know, and um, the the British colonization of Ireland, and um, the multi pronged offensive. So that's not, not just a group like Hamas, you know, who's actually willing to wage violence, but it's the the really pretty well organized groups of Palestinian youths who are using um, the internet and using other communication means and methods to get their stories told and to kind of spread. It feels like there's a groundswell of support for Palestinian rights, uh, even in the United States where, you know, it's still a minority, but it's growing and it's, it's seething as a group. Like you can see it in New York city, Jewish voices for peace in DC, also Jewish voices for peace leading the charge there. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's happening and uh, it's, it, it's the type of thing that, you know, like apartheid South Africa, no one thought it was going to fall when it fell. Um, and of course, the United know. States and Reagan supported it right up to the very end. I think we were the only country left in the world that still supported it. So I think that's how it's going to be with Israel as well. It'll probably be 
every other country in the world and the United States population against Israel and their violence and their um, just total disregard for human rights and international law. But the ruling class in the United States and the ruling class in Israel will go down right to the bitter end until they can't possibly hold up this facade any longer, this puppet government, uh, which is essentially held up by, again, U.S. political, economic, and military support. And and they're rattled. I mean, I think this was an enormously uh, costly and devastating blow that was, that was, you know, waged against them by Hamas. And it was, you know, it caught them off guard, I think, because of hubris, because of their belief in their own superiority as a surveillance state, um, as a, you know, this, this group that is so, you know, mandatory service for Israeli citizens who, you know, take pride in their service of the military really like they they graduate a ton of very qualified individuals um you know and so it, it really makes netanyahu look bad right and it really does you know they had intelligence three days ahead of time from egypt they should have had their forces on the, on the gaza border you know if they actually had been you know ready to withstand or to stop or to slow this attack but they were not right, and so this is—it's it, not only a chance for the world to start to see the absolute aggression and you know just disregard for human well-being and human life that we're seeing from the Israeli state in response to these horrific attacks, but we're also seeing a vulnerability, um, you know. And I think we're going to power see... centers of a, a vulnerability of power centers. Those in power mm-hmm. are very taken aback by this, you know. Poorly planned, poorly funded, you know, terrorist attack. Uh, that's the thing about the war on terrorism. It's, it has no face. There is no standing army. You know, everyone is an enemy. Once the um, Soviet Union fell, that was Reagan's big campaign. You know, once, the, once there was no longer the Soviet Union to um, be the enemy for all United States uh, or at least the, the reason for all United States aggression around the world, then it became, you know, terrorism. So anyone can be a terrorist, you know. Um, and I think that's one thing of what's Israel's response here. It's creating terrorists every single day. Um, right. People in the Middle East, certainly, and maybe all around the world, they are seeing what's happening here. And they are, you know, creating very angry, very um, upset people um, who are, um, you know, uh, opposed to Israeli aggression, to the United States aggression, to what the United States has done in the Middle East since, right. you know, the 1950s. Um, and I think in our last podcast, I read about a CIA, um, you know, a CIA uh, administrator that he even admitted that, yeah, you know, 9-11, the response in the war on terror created terrorists for, you know, the thousands of people that died in the World Trade Center um, we escalated violence to a 20-year war, killing hundreds of thousands of people. I think Chomsky had this quote that uh, the uh, sanctions on Iraq, which sanctions are never effective, um, you know, they, they usually hurt um, the population and strengthen the government in power because it makes citizens more dependent on that government because they're not getting any food in. Um, right. But, you know, the... Um, you know, these, these, types of, <laughs> these types of things, you know, just strengthen, um, you know despots and people in power to strengthen Saddam Hussein, um, you know, and uh, just, you know, 
basically, um, I think the sanctions uh, in Iraq prior to the invasion, I think something like every day as many people died from food and hunger shortages from the sanctions as did in the World Trade Center. So every single day, uh, you know, we were causing the, that many deaths of, his, uh, of Iraqis, you know, so that's, that's quite an escalation of violence. So, yeah, I mean, I feel bad for whatever the thousands of innocent um, Israeli people that have died. But uh, in the last 20 days, you know, thousands and thousands of innocent Palestinians have died because of them, you know. And, I, and, and again, yeah, a lot of these people, Hamas does not speak for them. Uh, I'm sure that they're as angry as anyone about Israel, these innocent people. But I'm sure they didn't want to see innocent Israelis killed from, you know, the, the attacks that happened. And I'm certain, I, I felt terrible, not, not for as much as the innocent Israelis that died, which I did, but I'm like, oh boy, this is not going to be good for the Palestinians. Like, okay, you know, they, they, a lot of people died that day and, you know, uh, I guess they accomplished their goal, their terroristic goal. But I was like, oh boy, you know, Israel is going to strike back. They're going to be supported by the United States, by Europe. It's not going to be good. And um, what happened, it's way worse than I even expected. Um, of course, I felt bad for the innocent um, Israelis that died, but I felt even worse because I knew that, they were the people in Palestine, the innocent Palestinians that had nothing to do with the Hamas attack. I knew that they it was going to be tough for them, and it has been, and it maybe just be getting, might just be starting because I guess they're still talking about a ground invasion, right? That's going to be really ugly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I, I do want to follow up on the point that you made about creating terrorists, right? So we've we've seen it. Um, we've seen the U.S. do that by knocking out Saddam Hussein and creating a power vacuum, which allowed the rise of ISIL and ISIS, um, you know, groups that didn't really exist before in their Al-Qaeda grew up in that area that had not really previously been seen in that area, right? So creating um, enough anger. But the same is true of, of Israel, right? And so the, the two strongest places where we see in terms of like a violent resistance are southern Lebanon and in the Gaza Strip. And those are places where Israel has been especially brutal in its repression, in its crackdown, in its control. And, you know, sneaking into Lebanon or going into southern Lebanon and just wiping out stuff, just horrifically, just bombing just, to, you know, to shards and nothing left, right? So that's going to create the blowback. It's going to create the reaction. It's going to create, you know, a... a, a uh, grassroots resistance where you see the people kind of tolerate or in some cases support, um, you know, groups like Hamas or Hezbollah, right? So that's going to happen when people are, people's backs are against the wall and they people see- People are no angry and desperate and hungry, sure. And and oppressed, right? And so they see another, they, they're, they're looking up at a strong oppressive force, uh, a colonial settler force and yeah so you know in in both those places in the gaza strip and in southern lebanon you have groups you know of you have people who are willing to support you know groups that use violent means to to try to achieve their ends you know and, and one of the things i thought about with with hamas is it's kind of how reckless this was in the sense that we know like the second i saw that the attack had taken place before i knew any numbers i said this is going to be really really bad for Palestinians living in Gaza. 
this is just going to be sad. It's going to be gross. It's going to make me sick to my stomach every time I read the coverage. And I'm going to feel really, really upset, you know, because of the just the horrendous, you know, disregard for human life. Um, but I, I had already been doing a, a, a deep dive on my own kind of on uh, anti-colonialism. I had been meaning for, for like a couple of years to read a book by France Fanon um, called The Wretched of the Earth, kind of seen as like the primer on anti-colonialism. And, um, you know, and it's been, I'm like 65% of the way through it. I've been listening to it much more than I've been reading it, you know, on my bike rides to work. And as I get ready for the day, you know, in the quiet of my house, while my children are still asleep, I've been listening to it. Um, and it just has really made me think because it's, it, it just describes the anti-colonial effort and the anti-colonial, like, the, you know, the mindset of the anti-colonial actor. And it's just such a universal idea of fighting back to get your land back of, of resisting occupation and of kind of like how, how insidious, um, you know, the, the occupier is right. And how, how the mindset of the occupier of the colonial settler kind of just like infects that person, that party, that group to the point where they do depraved and horrific things that kind of like discount the humanity of the colonial you know, of the native, of the group that is indigenous to the region that's being colonized, you know, and it's just so striking that in the 60s and 70s, a theorist like Franz Fanon can write this and have it just speak so truly to the experience of the Palestinians or the experience of the American Indian that is still disaffected and, you know, either living without, you know, federal just, you know, whatever recognition of their tribal status, whatever. It's just, it, it's amazing how well that's laid out in that, in that book, the wretched of the earth by Franz Fanon. I have, uh, I ordered a couple by, um, Edward Said. Have you read any of his stuff? Yeah, but only, you know, snippets and selections and stuff and never complete works. So that is certainly something I'd like to check out as well. Yeah. Culture and imperialism. I, mm -hmm. I haven't read it yet. And orientalism. Uh, I know yeah. Chomsky and Saeed were homies. He said a lot of good things about uh, the now deceased Edward Saeed. Um, so I'm looking forward. I've heard some of his uh, talks, and he talks uh, Edward Saeed. I believe he mentions a lot about um, Israel and Palestine, too. But, yeah, certainly that settler colonialism, that's the most um, violent type of colonialism. Um, the way I kind of see colonialism is one group of people, um, you know, uh, dominating another you know i think some of the ne uh, the neo-colonialism that we're seeing today is like the imf you know economic forms where you know the global south is essentially um you know under the boot of um the rich countries um europe and the united states um and we kind of use the global financial system uh, to keep uh, you know, to enslave them to our demands using debt. Um, but the most violent form is settler colonialism, where essentially, you know, settlers come from the home country and they essentially, like what America was founded on, they wipe out uh, the indigenous population, take over. Uh, and that's kind of what's going on 
um, you know, every piece by piece um, in Israel and what, what's left of Palestine. So it's very, very violent. Um, and it makes sense, I guess, uh, because the United States is um, Israel's closest ally. Um, yeah, our history, you know, it's very deep in American culture. Um, America was a nascent empire. It was an empire from it when it was founded. I think the Native Americans, the indigenous here, used to call George Washington the village destroyer. Um, we've mentioned this on other podcasts, but the Revolutionary War. Um, part of the Revolutionary War, uh, at least what was going on in the late 1700s, um, you know, Americans and the, the colonists there were trying to win their independence from Britain. But they were also fighting a two-war front uh, against the indigenous population. Um, they were trying to take over their lands, and they used violence to, you know, push them out of their lands. And that's one reason um, Britain uh, and the and the Native Americans they kind of formed a little bit of an alliance because um, the indigenous, you know, the Native Americans knew if uh, the colonists won their independence, it wasn't going to be good for them, and it wasn't. So you know, this this settler colonialism is deep into our history, you know, and um, if you look into some of the mythology, you know, the city on a hill America is supposed to be, um, it's, it's, you know, it's intertwined with, like, uh, you know, manifest destiny and all this, all these, like, fairy tales, like, you know, we're, we're, you know, we, I say, it's like, you know, white people come into uh, the Americas to, you know, to show them about democracy or show them about, uh, you know, what civil society is all about. These savages, you know, and, and show them about our religion and, and all Christianity, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Christianity, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we are doing our just, we are our just duty, you know, to, to um, you know, help these poor savages out. Of course not. The worst thing that ever happened to the indigenous here in the Americas was the day the Europeans set, for, set foot here. You know, that was the worst day probably in their history. No good came of it whatsoever. Uh, but, you know, it's tied in the mythology, and some people would buy it, you know. And we're told these stories in, in school, and that's, I think that's an awesome thing. What you're trying to do is tell kids the truth, you know. And you're doing this in Boston, maybe the America's most liberal city, and it's still a big challenge for you. I'm down in, I'm down in Texas could you imagine how much difficulty you'd be having trying to teach the, the stuff down here? Well, no, and interestingly enough, a lot of the textbook companies are headquartered in Texas, and so they actually have a, an outsized role in dictating kind of the, the national curriculum on a lot of stuff. So, you know, you'd, you'd be surprised how much Texas plays into, although nowadays, you know, with the banned book movement in Florida, Texas, uh, those states like that, you you're going to see a real disparity between what kind of stuff students see. You know, in my area, my, my, our school librarian has a, her whole li library is, is banned book theme. It's like, oh, every, that's awesome. it's so cool. And she has banned book bingo. Kids can come in and get a bingo card and like find all the banned books. And, you know, it's just phenomenal, right. To have someone like that standing up against that. Um, what kind of books are banned? What kind of books usually get oh, banned? Because I'm not outside of education, so yeah, you know, this I'm is not just this is not just education, right? These are these are being banned from libraries across you know states like Florida, but just you'd be so surprised. Harry Potter is one of them because what? some groups some groups thought it was satanic in nature. Oh wow! Um, you know anything by Toni Morrison, who's just an unbelievably talented and just like evocative writer about being black in America, 
you know, you can't have that, right. You can't have a, a like an honest look at what that struggle is like. Um, but you, the list is just wild and wacky it, and it's really sad. And it's sad because like educators in Florida, you know, because of DeSantis's laws have, you know, uh, tried to avoid getting in trouble or avoid getting their schools in trouble. So they've actually ended up taking a whole lot of like almost every book off the shelves of their school libraries to avoid, you know, the scrutiny or, you know, some of the penalties that are meant to come with this law. But, you know, it just, it, it makes me really worried um, about those states, but I, I do, you know, I, I do think that we have a whole lot of educators across, even in states like Texas, right? You People don't become teachers unless they care about the future of our, our kids. And generally the people who care about the future of our kids, you know, in a really real and meaningful way are the people who are going to teach history in a more honest way. Uh, or teach about sexuality in a way that's going to pre- prevent kids from co- from committing suicide because they they're you know the, the way they feel doesn't match the way they're told they're supposed to feel, right? So like I, I do have faith in educators as a group because I don't think I think it's self selected as a group of people who you know care about the future of our nation and and want you know tolerance above all and peace to prevail. Right. I feel like that's like more commonly what we find in, in education. Um, but yeah, I, I do, you know, I've been quite involved in our union this year and you know, I have left Boston. I want to be clear about that. I'm no longer in that very big district, but I'm still in a, a growing district of mostly, you know, what would consider, you know, so that so the, the defining factor in in schools is usually do they qualify for the federal free breakfast and lunch program that's kind of a threshold of socioeconomic status within a district and we're probably at like 60 65 percent um in my district now so a heavy immigrant community from brazil uh, and it's a you know a small city by massachusetts standards um but it's it's cool to see you know the the, the the educators like the librarian or the you know other people that I'm working with who are kind of taking this stuff seriously and making sure to protect you know to protect kids right and so our our union is up for a contract um, and so I'm on the contract action team so I'll, I'll be happy to report on, yeah on, I'll be happy to report on this podcast how that that process goes um, but it, you know it has been an interesting look. And it's just a great time to be, you know, involved. As we've talked about previously, when I've been on this show, you know, the groundswell of of support that we're seeing, where the public is ready to support unions. Um, you know, the UAW strike has just been a lot of fun for me to watch, um, and and a lot of the wildcat teacher strikes that we've seen in, in places where you wouldn't expect them, right? Like What's that mean, like, a wildcat strike? What's that mean? So wildcat, if if my union were to go on strike in Massachusetts, it would have to be wildcat. So wildcat is a, like basically an illegal strike. Oh, wow. you're, you're going against union leadership because union leadership would get in trouble if they authorized the strike yeah. because Massachusetts law prevents us from striking. Um, but it happens when... when That's when, our uh, only negotiating power. Those in power... Um, would love to make striking illegal, and they. I think yeah. I've even seen some uh, judicial movements to try to fine, um, you know, striking workers the cost of production. I think it's costing um, 
GM or something like that. I hate how it's framed. It's costing GM. How about the paychecks that's costing the people that are striking? It's costing yeah. GM. Who gives a damn about the shareholders? But anyways, yeah. the way it was framed, it costing GM something like $200 million a day. Uh, mm-hmm. Imagine if the striking workers were uh, subjected to that. They would never be able to get from underneath that, you know, and and that's how the rules and laws are designed in this country. They want to make striking very difficult or even outlaw it. You said something though, real quick, let me go back to the Israel conflict. You yeah. said something about peace and how, you know, you, you promote, you want peace, you know, you're promoting peace. You want a peaceful resolution. I do for sure. I want a peaceful resolution. The United States is standing in the way of one that's standing in the way of a ceasefire uh, because it says that's, you know, what Hamas wants, which, you know, obviously it's just allowing, um, you know, Israeli leadership to dictate their agenda. Uh, the United States is just not getting in the way. It's very much uh, allowing, you know, Israel to kind of, you know, essentially, um, you know, I guess um, giving them autonomy. You know, this is not the U.S.'s battle. It's just going to back its uh, political rival. But ultimately, Israel and the leadership there want peace. They don't want constant war. They want peace, a certain kind of peace, a certain kind of peace where, you know, they take more pieces of Gaza and Palestine. So they want, you know, a very specific kind of peace. Um, though I tweeted this the other day. Uh, as soon as every inch of Gaza is destroyed, look for Israel to call for a ceasefire. Once they've destroyed every capability uh, of the Palestinian people, once they've just completely um, massacred as many as they need to, you know, to win this conflict or whatever is how they see it, then they're going to call for a ceasefire. Hitler wanted peace. He didn't want, you know, certainly not a world war. He wanted a certain kind of peace, a peace where the Nazis at the end were in control of the world uh, political system. Napoleon, I'm sure, Attila the Hun, they all want peace, but they want a specific kind of peace. When the peace and the, and the dust settles, you know, and when it's all over, they're the ones in power. You know, that's what Israel wants, too. Israel wants peace, but when on its own terms, once they've killed enough people and destroyed as many buildings as possible, whatever's left of Gaza, as long as they, once they've made it a parking lot, uh, and then they've taken whatever territory that they uh, want to acquire. Then they'll call for a ceasefire. And then if there's any retaliation, they'll say, "See, we tried to. We, we wanted peace, but they, they wouldn't. You know, they wouldn't. Um, they wouldn't stop. They kept, uh, you know, uh, violently attacking us. And that's the way uh, it's usually presented. Um, once once Israel gets their complete agenda and gets everything they want, then they'll call for a ceasefire. So that's what I look to happen. Um, but uh, we're. Oh, I wanted to. I want to get to, I don't know if you want to say anything about my peace talk there, but, um, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about the educational industrial complex. We had mentioned this. uh, We were kind of on the education system. We got about 20 minutes to go. Uh, You had mentioned something about the educational industrial complex and these federal dollars and then these private companies come in and, you know, make profit on essentially the, you know, the industry. So I wrote down some things here that probably make up the education industrial complex, and maybe you can speak to it since you're the expert here. But standardized tests, textbooks, certifications, degrees, study guides, all this kind of stuff, um, you know, all these kind of stuff that I've taken. I, I, I don't know how many Scantrons, how many standardized tests. Uh, I'm a healthcare professional. I'm licensed. So many, you know, so many uh Boards and licensures and all different sorts of stuff. Uh, all these study guides that are like two and three hundred dollars a pop. 
I mean, yeah. this is the education system generally. Uh, to become a professional in the United States, it's very, very expensive. Uh, at one point in time, we had the best in, in America, the best public education system in the world. The GI Bill after World War II, when the United States had half the world's wealth and only 6.5% of the world's population. We had the best public education system in the world, and now it's privatized, $2 trillion in student loan debt, and now we have the education industrial complex, and it's just it's just the quagmire of just a lot of grossness. Um, so why don't you speak to it from as an educator? What what do you when I say the educational industrial complex? This was a term that we talked about maybe a month or so ago. I'd never heard before, and you're like, oh yeah, it's a real thing. It's already been coined. Can you talk about it a little bit? Yeah, I mean it's been coined, but not not broadly enough to have it recognized when it's mentioned as you did. I thought that was a, a you know kind of well put together. Um, but yeah, there's just so much to it, right? So there's the, like you said, the standardized test companies actually kind of stand out first and foremost in my, in my brain because of. In my field, there's a, there's a lot of certification. I'm, I don't go into detail about it, but there's certifications, exams and all kinds of advanced training. And, you know, you get little fancy initials after your name, all this kind of nonsense. Uh, it's like five grand or three grand or $3,500 just to sit for this stupid test and get a couple of initials after your name. I mean, what a joke. Yeah, no. So, and that that runs because of No Child Left Behind under George W. Bush. That runs all the way down to you know first, second, third grade in a lot of cases. And so, there's usually there's one very large company headquartered in the UK, but with their U.S. headquarters in San Antonio, Texas, called Pearson. That does a whole. Oh lot. yeah, I've seen their books. Oh yeah. Yeah, a whole lot of the administration of those exams, all the way down to that grade school level, right? So that's part of it. And that's guaranteed their dollars basically by these federal laws and, and state laws now that mandate these tests. And my problem with the tests, you know, I have many problems with the tests, but one of the large problems I have with the tests is that they're being held out now as, as graduation requirements for individual kids, but they're also, you know, there's federal dollars tied to the results from those tests. But in my district, right, you have 60% of kids grew up speaking a language other than English or in Boston, right? You had, you know, so many, 85% of kids from families that were below the poverty line, but then you had 75% of those kids growing up speaking a language other than English in their house being held to the same English speaking standard for English reading, English writing, and a math test that's in English, right? So like how asinine is that? Not only is you know, let alone the fact that we've demonstrated that the tests are racist, right? That they do benefit a certain group and that group is white. Racist, <laughs> culturally biased. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 So that's, they, that's socioeconomic income is, is a big factor as well, I believe. Yeah. So that's part of it, right? The, the, the testing mandate and the, the, the fact that that mandate then provides for this kind of like endless revenue stream for companies like Pearson. Then you have companies that provide all kinds of like services around the education process, right? So like at the grade school, middle school and high school level, you're going to have like behavioral management tools that are like. But to LSAT preparations and MCAT preparations, oh. it's probably a multi-million dollar a year business. Yeah, that too, right? So like you just all these different places where I, 
where you know capitalist groups have moved into the realm of education. SATs, ACTs, but I think a lot of colleges are getting away uh, from those, which is a great thing. Uh, at least I've been reading about you know a lot of colleges doing away with those entrance exams and aptitude tests. It's great. Yeah, I, and I'm moving away from even talking about those types of tests. I'm talking about like these products that are sold to administrators and sold to administrators to, to make their teachers use for whether that's like putting your grades up online or putting the student work online or whatever it might be. There's so much stuff for, you know, school districts to buy, to try to use when in reality, teachers will tell you time and again, you know, technology is nice. We've learned to use technology, especially in the COVID pandemic. But what we really want is investment in our schools in the sense of like really good infrastructure, but also just the qualified teachers in strong enough numbers to provide kids the attention they need to succeed. Like it's really like give us small class sizes, give us well-qualified colleagues, and we will teach the shit out of these kids and make them. Yeah, pay your teachers. Pay teachers a living wage. Just pay teachers enough that that like qualified folks can stay in the profession for a long time. You get the best. Yeah, you want yeah. the best. You want yeah. to aspire to be a teacher, not not like, oh, I guess I'm going to be a teacher because I'm not really sure what I want to do with my life. But you get the best and the brightest because I think it's maybe the most important profession we have available. Uh, teachers are going to teach the next wave of professionals going everywhere, you know, from astronauts to surgeons to whatever, you know. Um, yeah. And, I, and one of the things we've been working on in messaging for, you know, our union contract action team is the fact that that message is the truth, which is that teachers unions are most often fighting for students. Right. So like the stuff that we want for ourselves, whether that's higher pay, better protections for our jobs, better protections on the job for our working conditions. Fine. All of those things. In addition to the fights we fight for our students, whether that's like special ed numbers of special educators or whatever you might have, we fight for our students first. So like listening to teachers unions allows for a better education for the kid. So we're fighting for the kids first and foremost. And that's like one of the things that I, I think needs, and just like, like nurses unions, right? Nurses unions are fighting for their patients. That's like, at the end of the day, that's where their hearts are. They just want to make sure that they are fairly compensated. Yeah, they're and overworked that, and underpaid. And when they're overworked and underpaid, that's bad for the patients. Exactly. Same thing with teachers. Right. And so I, I just want to make sure that that's clear. Right. Like we're we're pushing back against a system that's not designed for our the types of kids that I teach. Right. The types of kids I got into education was to teach the underserved communities. Those those kids are not going to do well in this system without us, you know, and without people fighting for them and, and empowering them to fight for themselves and empowering their parents to fight for themselves. And that's like what we try to do. And, you know, it's, it's just such an uphill battle. And, and the other piece of the, the industrial complex uh, is, you know, the, the higher education system, which you were getting into, right? The certifications for certain professions, but, but even just like the, the cost of a college education and the fact that an undergrad, de- an undergrad degree is like a high school diploma at this stage, right. right? Like it's just such ridiculousness. And the fact that your, your student debt can never be wiped out. Like a capitalist can Very run, cool. can, the capitalist can run amok and and do all kinds of stuff like a Donald Trump, right? And and then just go ahead and declare bankruptcy and get back to zero. Structure those debts and wash your hands yeah. and move on you, to the next. Uh, you just team. can't do that with no. student 
with students. It's a lifelong debt trap. And that's just... Yeah, I think Biden is one of the architects of that, so we have Biden to thank for it. I do think a Biden administration, I I do prefer it over a Trump administration, just barely. Um, But yeah, I think Trump was terrible, but I don't think much of the Biden administration, although he has been pressured to to at least publicly, uh, you know, the rhetoric, like supporting, you know, uh, the striking auto workers and that sort of stuff, but I'm I'm sure behind closed doors, his agenda is a lot different than what the agenda are uh, of the UAW. Um, I did see like a documentary, it might have been PBS Frontline. They actually do some pretty decent stuff. That's public dollars. Um, you know, uh, a lot of times now they're even relying on corporate funding. But PBS does some good stuff. Frontline, I believe that's what I saw. Uh, I saw a documentary that. Like Bill Gates in Africa and the global south has like an education company where he's basically siphoning resources and tax dollars from these really poor governments uh, and providing, you know, the, the, the students there with an education. Of course, you know, an education with the elite agenda and essentially um, what he's having these students do is like they're just picking someone off the street with no education that can read and write in English and each day they give they're giving them like a lesson plan. They just read it verbatim to the kids, and they basically are just serving the role of like a robot or an orator. Uh, and again, kind of just teaching um, you know the Bill Gates elite agenda, and that's what they're calling you know education in the South. And he gets like a lot of good publicity. Oh, you know Bill Gates is you know doing so many great things, trying to educate these people of, of Africa. Uh, first off, let them educate themselves. We shouldn't be going in and trying to siphon away. Uh, tax dollars and resources for these for-profit companies. You know what I think works? Public education. So get these private uh, industries out of education. Pay your uh, teachers. Pay the best and the brightest, the people that actually want to be there and, and go in and change the, you know, the society uh, from the ground up, you know, a grassroots effort. Um, and I think teachers are very much underappreciated underpaid, overworked, and I think you guys do great things, so I'm always fighting for you. I'm an ally, for sure. Um, I, I hate the sports industrial complex. I, I used to be obsessed with sports. This is one of the last things. we got about 10 more minutes. I think it's just a distraction for society. Um, this is, a, I think it's Juvenal or Juvenal or whatever, how you ever say He's a Roman poet. But he said, uh, give them bread and circuses, and that's kind of what the gladiator games were all about, a distraction to society, a circus. We're right in the middle of the NFL season, the most popular sport in America. So much time, money, effort, resources are dedicated to this. We have $2 trillion in student debt, and yet you know, we're watching these uh, on Saturday, these cathedrals, these giant 100,000-seat stadiums. Uh, I went to a large college the athletic facilities were incredible, and of course, you know they were only uh, uh, only the the top notch athletes on the football team and basketball team could access these um, you know insane athletic um, facilities. Uh, so much just time, money, resources. I'm sure a lot of the tuition dollars are spent on these stadiums and these athletic facilities. Uh, I just think you know. I think that it's just kind of disgusting to me. And then if you want to go to, like, the NFL level, you have billionaires that own these sports franchises that have are just rolling in money. And yet, what do they do? They they claim poor. And they, they, they ask and beg for the taxpayer to finance their stadiums in, in, a, in a, just a uh, aberrant uh, display of, um, you know, 
corporate welfare, um, you know, just funneling tax dollars away from these cities and municipalities, um, you know, away from their resources to, uh, you know, build these stadiums so they can profit millions and millions of dollars on. So, uh, yeah, I just, it just kind of disgusts me. I, I was into sports. I did like sports. I still like sports. Um, but now I see it as more of a distraction than anything, although I do watch it sometimes, for sure. Sometimes Saturday, sometimes Sunday. Uh, not just football, other sports, too. But I think it's not important. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to society. There's so much debate on should trans athletes be allowed to play and all that kind of stuff. At this point, I don't care. If they want to play, let them play. They're not important. Whoever wins the game, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's so fundamental to our culture. And I think what it kind of does is you know, create um, us versus them mentality, jingoism. It divides. It distracts. Uh, so I'm going on a tangent about sports here and how much, again, time, energy, resources are directed to it. And, again, I think it's mostly a big distraction. Going back to the days of the Roman gladiators, give the people bread and circuses. What say you about sports? We had mentioned that in the pre-call a month or so back. We're right in the heart of the NFL season. Half of America at least is captivated by these Sports every Saturday and Sunday, uh, hundreds of millions of Americans have got their eyeballs glued to it, probably not mentioning anything about what's going on in Ukraine or anything what's going on in Gaza, uh, completely distracted the important stories or even, you know, the lack of uh, the millions of people that are hungry today in America and the hundreds of thousands that are homeless. These bigger problems, but more people are worried if the, the blue team beats the white team or the green team or the red team, whatever team on a Saturday or Sunday. It's a complete distraction. It's a complete ruse. Uh, and it actually serves a purpose. Again, creating that kind of us versus them mentality, that jingoism. And it's tied in with patriotism, the national anthem, the flag, the fireworks, the support the troops, the propaganda, the police, all that kind of stuff. Um, what say you about sports? No, I think that's a, you know, make a lot of good points there. You know, I think it's important to recognize that that uh, national anthem with the military formation flyover often or whatever that you see at the beginning of NFL games. That's that was that's paid for by the DOD, right? Yep. And Department of Defense only started doing that after kind of after nine eleven, realizing that you know they needed the recruiting that would come of that, right? And I I'm like you, I grew up. And, you know, went through college and even after college was really into sports and to following, you know, fantasy, you know, playing fantasy football and fantasy baseball. And, you know, I, there's some really interesting parts of baseball and, you know, the history of baseball that I find really interesting. The immigration, the waves of immigrants that came into baseball um, and the effect they had on the league. All Baseball that. not invented by Abner Doubleday. That was a complete lie. I ran no, into that no. a little bit. But yeah, I do like the history no, no, of baseball, no, no. too. Yeah, and, but but I agree. I think it's, it serves a very good purpose as a, you know as a as a kind of an opiate of the masses, right? To to quote Marx and and kind of misattribute his quote about religion. It wasn't exactly what he was saying about that. But anyway, I agree. I, I think that it serves a purpose for the ruling class. Um, it also serves as kind of a false hope for uh, a lot of folks from underserved and, and, and impoverished communities. Of a, of a way out that is so very narrow, right? Such a very narrow and lucky path, um, even for the most talented and hardest working individuals. Um, you know, it's just, it's unfortunate how much our society has has clued in on it. And I think you make a great point about jing jingoism. 
kind of being bred by sports fandom, right? The Olympics were restarted by fascists, the idea of like pitting one nation against another. But just the ability to do that, to pick a team and to to fight for whatever that team does and says against all other teams, that's, that's jingoism, right? It's it's like it's like forcing this nationalist, this like, you know, again, all these borders are man-made, they're imaginary, they're ridiculous. You know, pitting me against a New York resident because they're you know, I'm from the Boston area and they're Yankees fans from the New York area. It's just ridiculous, right? So if I'm if I'm a baseball fan, my the, what I have in common with that other baseball fan is so much more than what we have, you know, in that we hold out as differences against each other, right? Just like what I what I've said a number of times on this podcast about, uh, you know, the the soldier who fights for the U.S. is, you know, what that soldier has in common with the soldier who fights for Russia. There's so much more in common. Yeah, between I, those I pity two. them both, and they're both being exploited. Yeah, they're both being exploited, but they have so much more in common with each other than they have with the leader who sent them to fight, no right? So it's just, it's silly. It's silly, and it's um, it, it serves a purpose. It drives capitalism. Good my God, it drives capitalism. It drives. It really does. Oh man, I mean, like the T-shirts, the hats, the little foam fingers, the sixteen-dollar beers. Oh, what am I saying? Like more like twenty-dollar beers. Yeah, I mean, and just the advertising revenue of even like at this stage of the Which game, tax deductible, of... meaning we pay for the yeah. privilege to have our brains rotted. Right, right. It's just, it's it's too bad. Hey, lesson uh, uh, lesson three minutes here. What's going on with your podcast? You got a you got another. Um, project in the works you want to talk about that a little bit or are you still kind of keeping that under the wraps no i mean i I really appreciate you always giving me time to plug uh what we're working on Uh, my friend c money burns and i um as well as another friend anthony who kind of we picked up along the way still in the early planning stages right i've got four kids i got a full-time job um, I got to change the world isn't it i've got i've got goats i've got chickens um, you know, we, we're working on it slowly, but we're putting together something kind of fun that I think will, will kind of hopefully add to the, uh, what we see as some of the best stuff that's put up by the left, um, in terms of like political education, um, uh, exploring policy that works, um, and kind of exploring things with a, with a Marxist lens as, as C and I kind of take to most things. But that's also a historical lens, right? That's a that's an in-depth historical lens that refuses to submit to a false binary, which I think is unfortunately the way that we're presented so much of our media. Yeah, there's usually two, our news. Yeah, two two sides are talked about. You know, the two sides that are warring. Uh, what's often not talked about is the other third. It's usually one third on one side, one third on the other side, and another third of the population wants nothing to do with either of those two ruling classes. So. Uh, right. Or there's just so many complicating factors that go into something. But, you know, like we said, the idea of peace, like to, to approach the Ukraine-Russia situation with a real pro-peace stance. The United States like, also standing in the way of peace in, in Russia and in peace yeah. in Gaza right now. It could easily use its political power to negotiate peace, but it does not want to. Right. But you'll have a liberal you know, stand back and say, oh, if you're going for peace, you must be you know, supporting what Putin's doing. And it's like, I didn't say that. Did I stutter? It's like <laughs> it's like I'm talking about peace. Like, right. you know, it's, so it's 
Yeah, there's a lot to stuff. I'm, we want to make I'm an sure anarchist, that- man. I don't support the U.S. government. I don't support Hamas. I don't support the government of Israel. I don't support Putin. I don't support the crooked government in Ukraine. I don't support any of those crooks. Right. No, I, I hear you, and I understand your uh, your perspective, and I appreciate the anarchist perspective, and I think the anarchists have been very strong comrades on the left for a long Your time. Comrades. So, hey, man, we got like 30 seconds to go. It's always a pleasure. We do this once a month now. I'll catch up with you in December, man. It goes quick, doesn't it? It really does go quickly, but it's always a pleasure to be talking to you, and I, I appreciate you, and I will be checking out this and your other episodes and sharing them with folks uh, who I talk to. So uh, keep up the good work, man. Pat, TDS. Thanks, my friend. Have a good night. You too, bud. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. Also want to thank my special guest, Pat TDS, for a great discussion tonight on Israel-Palestine, colonialism, the education-industrial complex, sports, and many other topics. Again, I am your host, MC Squared, no gods, no masters, I'm out.